0: Good morning. Uh, I can't tell you how good it is to see you guys today. Uh, I think part of it may be uh, this. I'm still new being back after being gone in the month of June. And so having missed you guys for a month to see you guys now, I'm appreciating you maybe uh, even more than usual. But, but it's, it's good to see you today. I've seen so many smiling faces today. There have been many warm embraces. But I know too, I know there are many of you in this room that are hurting today. I know many of you, these are hard, trying times. Maybe job, maybe finances, maybe a relationship that matters so much to you that is strained or severed or lost. In some cases, it's illness. In some cases, it's the loss of a priceless level. And many of you are hurting in this room. And I suspect that that all of you hurting, you have reached out to God and you've prayed fervently to him. And, And... He takes great joy in that in meeting you in that. But as you've prayed, I wonder if you know what to expect from God. I wonder if you know in your circumstances what you might expect from him. And I'm somewhat concerned in that you may have some unrealistic, some unbiblical expectations. And and if God doesn't meet those, then there may be a crisis of faith or a loss of faith. So there's one thing biblically there's one and only one thing biblically that you and I could expect from God, and it is a huge thing. It is such good news, and, and so I want to move into that and teach on that today. We've been in the book of, of Habakkuk for uh, a week. This is our second week now, and I'll teach on that. But I want to land on, on two important biblical truths first. One of them I touched upon last week. It's Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. "They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. And I mentioned last week that that this was said specifically at that time to the people of Israel for that season of their lives. And it's it's always dangerous to take one line of Scripture and assume it applies to us. But in this case, this does apply to us. If you take the, the totality of what God says throughout Scripture, He says to every human being, the plans I have for you... They're for good, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope Now you and I can walk outside those plans, we can rebel against those plans, we can wreck all of the plans he has for us, but his plans for us are good, always, they're for good. And then I want to look briefly at Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. These two verses are two verses of, of maybe a small handful that you should write down, you should put in front of you, you should memorize, but this is what it says. It says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God is saying, I see everything. I know everything. I, I have all of the span of eternity in my view. And Because of that, I, I don't think like you do. I think in this context of all knowledge, all of eternity, and I don't, I don't do what you might do. ...because of my scope of knowledge and righteousness and goodness and wisdom. So, hold that in mind and, uh, and then we'll jump into Habakkuk. We started last week, so I need to give you some background again... And, ...and a little summary of what we covered last week. Habakkuk, if you were not here... ...Habakkuk is one of 16 Old Testament prophets that authored books in the Old Testament. Twelve of those books are, are short and small. They're called Minor Prophets and Habakkuk is one of those. In fact, his book is three chapters. It's about three pages... We know he wrote in this brief window of time between 609 B.C. and 605 B.C., this one brief sliver of time that spans about five years, 2,600 years ago. So the things he writes are, they're indeed, they're ancient wisdom. And he's writing to the kingdom of Judah. And I said last week that three centuries before he would write, the kingdom of Israel would have this civil war, and it would divide. And, and to the north, there'd be this kingdom of Israel, and then to the south, this kingdom of Judah. He's riding through the kingdom of Judah. It's where Jerusalem is. It's where the temple is. And then the times that he's in, you can best summarize, in fact, he did, as he cries out to God, by the terms evil and misery. Uh, there was, there's violence. There's massive ongoing dissension among people. There's this deep perversion of justice. I mentioned that the innocent were being murdered. In fact, uh, Uriah, one of the fellow prophets, one of his contemporaries, was murdered. Jeremiah, they were attempting to kill at this very same time as well. They would fail, but they would attempt to kill Jeremiah. The innocent are being murdered. I talked about the idolatry. Their worship had become so sick and twisted. I told you that they actually were doing temple prostitution, and they were telling people the way you honor God is you come into the temple, we'll provide a prostitute for you. But I spared you the worst. They were telling people the way you most deeply worship God is by human sacrifice. And not just any human, but but your deepest worship would be if you'd sacrifice your son or your daughter. Jeremiah 19 verses 4 and 5 would say, um, They have filled this place with the blood of innocent children. They have built pagan shrines to Baal, and there they burn their sons as sacrifices to Baal. And then a few chapters later, chapter thirty-two, verse thirty-five, he talks about sacrificing their sons and daughters to to another god, Molech. You, you and I, like we can't imagine; we cannot imagine a society as sick and twisted as this one that Habakkuk found himself living in. And so he he cries out to God, which is what we touched upon last week in verses one through four. He cries out to God, and, and it's this honest unfiltered unceasing prayer that's the first major takeaway from this book for us if if we're in trying times and 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 some of you are now but the rest of us will be someday we have been we will be again someday in trying times the first thing is is to have this honest like unfiltered unceasing prayer with God and so Habakkuk has done that we're about to jump into verse 5 and I would pose the question what can he expect from God? He's done what he's supposed to do. He's being honest with God. He's got this broken heart for this twisted, perverse culture that's supposed to be the people of God. And he's cried out to God, what can he expect from God? And I would ask you, what can you expect from God in your trying times, in your difficulties, in your pain, in your suffering? If it's, again, if it's a job or if it's relationship, if it's money, if it's illness, if it's great loss, what could you expect from God? And so Habakkuk 1 verse 5. This is what begins to unfold. It says, the Lord replied, look around at the nations, look and be amazed. For I'm doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe, even if someone told you about it. I'm raising up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people. They will march across the world and conquer other lands. God's saying, I, Habakkuk, I've heard your prayer, I've, I've watched, I've seen the the deep evil and the misery of this land, and I'm about I'm about to do something about that. I, I'm about to remove that evil leadership, Habakkuk. I'm answering your prayer and here's my answer. I, I'm gonna bring in and, and clearly he's saying God's saying I am raising up the Babylonians. And God himself says they are a cruel and violent people. <laughs> this is the solution. <laughs> You've got these really bad leaders here and so I've uh, got good news for you, Habakkuk. I'm going to remove them. I'm going to bring the Babylonians in. <laughs> and then God goes on with his comments. And just so Habakkuk understands that God really knows what he's about to do, God says they're notorious for their cruelty and do whatever they like. Their horses are swifter than cheetahs and fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their charioteers charge from far away like eagles. They swoop down to devour their prey. He goes on. On they come, all bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind, sweeping captives ahead of them like the sand. (laughs) They scoff at kings and princes. They scorn at at all their fortresses. They simply pile ramps of earth against their walls and capture them. They sweep past like the wind, and they're gone. But they're deeply guilty, for their own strength is their God. (laughs) So, Habakkuk is getting his answer he'd been pleading for for quite some time God says I'm going to remove the evil leadership of Judah I'm going to bring I'm raising up I'm bringing to power these in fact if you look at history you will see up until this very time in fact up until three or four years prior to this Babylon was just this footnote of a country they were not known as a as a powerful country at all. They hadn't conquered peoples before, and all of a sudden, right before this, right before Habakkuk's writing, all of a sudden they rose to stunning power with stunning swiftness. And God's telling Habakkuk, "I'm the one that's done that. I have given them this kind of power. I'm the one that's raised them up and given this kind of power." And, and God knows full well how cruel and how violent they are. And I, I find myself thinking back to Isaiah 55:8-9, where God says. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. My, my ways are so different than yours. There's no way you can even begin to understand them. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways are higher than yours and my thoughts higher than yours. What is God doing here? But Habakkuk responds back, verse 12, he says, "O Lord, my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal, surely you do not plan to wipe us out. Oh, Lord, our God, you've sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins. This is, this is very personal. He knows God. You say, you're, you're my God. You are my holy one. I, I I know your character. I know how holy you are. I know how you hate evil you are our rock, not just my God, not just my holy one. You're the rock of Judah. You're the rock of the people of Israel. Hey, surely you don't plan to wipe us out with, with these people. You're pure, you cannot stand the side of evil. Will you wink at their at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? Say, God, I I don't understand this is. The farthest thing from any expectation I would have ever had. And then he goes on, and he spells out what he's feeling. He says, are we only fish to be caught and killed? Are we only sea creatures that have no leader? Must we be strung up on their hooks and caught in their nets while they rejoice and celebrate? Then they'll simply worship their nets, and they'll burn incense in front of them. They'll say, these nets are the gods that made us rich. And this isn't just imagery. The Babylonians, they became... These conquerors, they would they take these massive hooks and they would, they would pierce through the very tender, sensitive lower lips of their captives. They would do this for, of the people of Judah. They would put these massive hooks through the lower lip and then they would string them up single file to march them into exile, these massive hooks through their lips. And there are these depictions that we found now of the Babylonians from that era of time that shows their gods that are sweeping up, squirming victims in their nets, in their fishing nets. Uh, this isn't just... Figurative speech, this is this is literally what tobacco knew, the Babylonians were already doing to those they were conquering. And he knew that they would do to the people of Judah, indeed, probably to him as well, if he would even survive this. Will you let them get away with this forever? Verse 17. Will they succeed forever in their heartless conquest? I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guardpost. There I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. These two truths that we talked about, Jeremiah 29, I, I, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're, they're plans for good, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope that's, that's, that's true, that is, that is irrevocable. It's God's intent and plan. It was for them. It is for us. But there's this other passage that says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, my ways are so far above yours; you can never even comprehend them. I, uh, there, there's there's something that is so very different here. So, so now Habakkuk didn't have the perspective of time that we have. Now, twenty six hundred years have passed, and we can look at what was happening, what had happened for for decades before this time, what, what happened in the years that followed, and, and this is a picture of what was going on. Here, of course, was the problem. There was this uh, uh, there's this evil that was. Uh, destroying all of the people of Judah, including those that were most evil themselves, but especially the vulnerable, were being destroyed. It's a big problem. But the root problem was this: was was that they had they had detached themselves from God. And, and while they had been, as every person is, they've been designed by the Creator of the universe to live in a relationship of trust in Him. And they had abandoned any thought of trusting God. And they had gone their own way. Which always leads to sin and more and more perversion and more and more evil if enough time is given. And, and, and so, so uh, God has to strike at the very root of this. It's not a case of getting them to behave. Uh, that's not enough. It's a case of getting them to once again to this point of deep trust in God. For, for 150 years before Habakkuk wrote this. God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet with the same message for 150 years. And they would, they would ignore the prophets or they would persecute the prophets. In many cases, they would kill the prophets as they did Uriah in this very season right now. They'd refused the prophets for 150 years. And, and they had this history of, of um, the, the other half of the former nation of Israel to the north. They're the nation, the kingdom to the south, the kingdom to the north. Uh, a hundred years before, God had been telling the kingdom to the north, Israel. He had sent prophets to them. that had gone down the same pathway of abandoning trust in God, the same pathway of evil. God had said to, to the northern kingdom again and again, if, if you do not turn back to me in trust, the day will come you will be destroyed and sent into exile. And the southern kingdom watched this, and, and it happened a century before. <laughs> so how dumb are they? <laughs> now God's saying, same thing. I did it once. Trust me, I'll do it again. And even in in Habakkuk's time, this is the the grace and generosity of God. Even in this time that Habakkuk is writing, Jeremiah the prophet is speaking and writing and, and saying this to the people. This is in Jeremiah 26, 13. But if you stop your sinning and begin to obey the Lord your God, he will change his mind about this disaster that he's announced against you. Even now. God said, after 150 years, if you you turn back to me now, disaster won't happen. I'll stop the Babylonians. They won't come in and defeat you. And then he even gives them this. He even says to them, and this is in in Jeremiah 27, 11. Finally, it gets to the point where they they are locked in. They're not going to turn to God. And God says, okay, here's here's what will happen. They will come. They will conquer you. But if you will just simply surrender to them... If you'll lay down your spears, lay down your bows, if you'll open the gates of Jerusalem, then they will come in, and you can stay in your land, and you can farm your farms, and you won't be killed, you won't be exiled. They will conquer you, so do it in the fashion that's best for you. And they refused to believe what God said, and so they would, the Babylonians would come in, and they would conquer them with the violence that it took to conquer them, and, th- and then they would exile many of these people off to uh, to the land of Babylon just as God had said he would. So when you watch what happens in Babylon, and you can see much of this in the book of Daniel, another prophet, the Old Testament, you read the book of Daniel, you can see in Babylon, there's this very small remnant of, of people there that have uh, have either kept their faith in God or have turned to God. Uh, Daniel's one example of that. In these 70 years in in Babylon, the, the small remnant, their faith is becoming so strong, it's like steel. It's Seventy years of exposed to the fire, and it's getting stronger and stronger and strongly. And then suddenly, just as God had forecasted and prophesied 70 years before, he said, 70 years, you'll be in exile. Like a whole generation, birth to death in exile. Seventy years, and then Babylon will fall suddenly, which it did. Historically, so unexpected, this great power suddenly collapses The Persians take over and as God had said 70 years before, he said there'll be this guy, even before that, there'll be this guy named Cyrus of Persia and and he'll send you back. And so after these 70 years of this small remnant whose faith is so strong, now the ones that God sends back to, to Judah to rebuild, they have faith like steel. And you can read the books of Ezra and the books of Nehemiah, which are two of those leaders that God has has raised up with faith-like steel over that 70 years in in Babylon. And and now there's there's this chance that Judah has again. Now, because of what God did, now there are these leaders that have deep, unbending, unyielding faith in God. And these are their leaders, which they had not had for so long, which is why God had to exile them. These are the leaders. So from our perspective, we can look back at it, and we can see what God was doing wasn't what Habakkuk had hoped. Habakkuk had hoped there was an easy fix. But sometimes a tree is so diseased, you can't simply lop off branches or even lop off limbs. Sometimes it's so badly diseased, you have to cut it back to the stump. And the hope is that the stump isn't diseased, also, and the hope that the stump can have a rebirth of life. In fact, Isaiah had written about that a hundred years before Backus' time. Isaiah said, "It's going to come down to this. It's going to come down to Israel is going to have to be cut back to a stump, but out of that stump will come this faith and life that will come out of that stump." So, so from our perspective. What did God do? Uh, Habakkuk's crying out, God, you you see the evil, remove the evil. What did God do? God God proved himself to be good to them at a level beyond what Habakkuk even hoped. Uh, Habakkuk had hoped for this quick, simple solution, just let's let's fix the behavior. Let's just do a quick fix and everything, all is fine. And God said, no, no, I need something deeper than that. I mean, this this will not have a good ending unless I cut it all the way back to the stump. (laughs) To do that, the, the prophets aren't being responded to. The Babylonians will be the answer to that. These cruel, evil people, I'll bring them in. There'll be this defeat. There'll be this exile. But out of that, out of the stump. I mean, there'll be this arising from the ashes of the people of Judah once again. God says to you, I know the plans I have for you, the plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and hope. But he also says to you, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. My ways are far beyond anything you could ever imagine. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways are higher than yours, my thoughts higher than yours. What does that mean? When you're in a hard time, what is the one thing you can expect from God? That he will prove himself to be good. (laughs) When it all unfolds, And whatever he does, whatever he is, the one one expectation you have, he will prove himself to be good. He's not promised unless he's specifically spoken to you in your hard time and said, "I, I got some specifics, I'm going to tell you what I'll do. If he's done that, then that's exactly what he'll do. But unless he's spoken exactly to you and said, let me give you details, there's this one powerful, profound thing that he's promised that you can expect of him. He says, In your hard times, you can expect that when the dust settles, I will prove myself to be good. And whatever I do, whatever I bring about, however I work, you'll be able to look back on it from some perspective. At some point in time, you'll be able to look back and you will see how very good I was. And this is what I've learned through time. Is it when God doesn't do what I most hope? <laughs> I, was, I was shooting too low. I, I, I just wanted like, to fix it. Just fix it. And when God doesn't do that, there's a much bigger fix that He's about. There's a much bigger issue at play. The, the stakes are much higher than I realize that He's going to fix the big stakes. It, 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 it's, it's much better, much better game. There was a time, <laughs> there, were, there were 12 men that began to follow Jesus. Because he promised he would usher in the kingdom of God. And they not only expected that he really would, but they expected how he would do it and what that kingdom would look like. So they they follow him. They abandon everything. They follow him for three years. And by the end of three years, every single one is deeply disappointed with Jesus because he didn't meet their expectations. One of them betrays him. The other eleven abandon him and they scatter, and their hopes and dreams are crushed. <laughs> he didn't deliver on expectations. <laughs> he promised a kingdom, and we know what the kingdom is supposed to look like, we think. He had so much, so much bigger plan, bigger vision, bigger solution. But getting there was shocking. <laughs> Who would have thought that the Son of God would die to usher in that kingdom? They didn't think that Thursday night. They didn't think that Friday. they didn't think it's Saturday but Sunday, they understood. They began to understand that, the, that, that God <laughs> God promises he will prove himself to be good. Jesus didn't deliver on on their expectations, but he did deliver on his promise. These are the ways of God. I don't know the circumstance that you're in right now, and it may be one that that what you're hoping for and praying for, God will answer exactly as you're hoping and praying. It it is so appropriate when there's an illness, so appropriate to pray that God would heal, and God still does that today. When there's a, a job problem, if there's a job lost, it's so appropriate to pray God would provide a job, and God still does that today. If, if there's broken relationships, and you're praying that that one will be healed and mended, it's so appropriate to pray for that. And God works powerfully, powerfully. There are two parties at play, and they all have free will, and they, anyone can mess it up still. But God works powerfully to see if both would yield with abandon to him and have reconciliation. so appropriate to pray for those things. And, and, and God may answer just as you are hoping he will in this case. But if he doesn't, there's something bigger at play. Uh, God will act. He will respond. And, and in the moment, you may not understand what the bigger play is. You won't, under, you won't even be able to see the goodness. Maybe you won't in a day or a month or a year. Or maybe even in your lifetime. But, but there'll come a time in heaven that you'll look back and you'll be able to look at every detail of your life. Everything God did. You look back from the perspective of heaven and say, God proved himself good in that detail, in that detail, in that detail. The apostle Paul, God used him so many times to physically heal people that were hurting. In fact, he used him at least once to raise someone from the dead. Paul understood. (laughs) God's in the healing business. God, God, at that time and even this day, heals people miraculously. Paul knew that. And yet, Paul has this he calls it this painful thorn in my flesh and most biblical scholars think there was some kind of physical ailment that was this ongoing physical pain in his life and and then paul would write in second corinthians 12 verses 8 and 9 he would say three different times i beg the lord to take it away each time he said my grace is all you need my power works best in weakness and Paul would say, so now I'm glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. If you study what Paul wrote and how he lived, Paul, Paul would say to you, I got something better than a physical healing. I understood that, that the power of Jesus must be radically dependent upon. I, I don't dare depend upon my strength because it's, ne- it's never enough. And he said, so I got this constant reminder I wake up again today, there's this physical pain, there's this reminder, I have to rely upon Jesus again, my power's not enough. And Paul would say, that's a bigger win. (laughs) If God had given me physical healing, I wouldn't have gotten the bigger win. Uh, I'll bring it more to date, Chuck Colson, some of you would know the name, Uh, the Richard Nixon White House, uh, most of you would know that name because he's the only president uh, in, in our era, that uh, where there's been impeachment and a president removed from office, and so Chuck Colson was part of that administration. And Chuck Colson uh, realizes, as uh, criminal charges are are coming down, he realizes that uh, he also will be convicted of crime. And and in the brokenness, there's a man of influence in his life who's a follower of Jesus, and Chuck Colson begins to follow Jesus as well. It's this honest thorough, deep conversion. But uh, but Colson, you you would know this, you would expect this, that he would pray to God, now, now I know you. Spare me prison. I, I don't want to go through that. Like I'm a marked man. The things I've heard about prison, I'd spare me going to prison. I, I'm following you now. I got it. I've learned it. I've learned all I need to learn. But God had something else in play and God didn't answer it as Chuck Colson was hoping, but God always promised that I will prove myself to be good. Chuck Colson goes to prison. He spent some time in prison. He comes out with this vision, this passion by God to go back into prison, to go back into prison after he's been released and begin to tell people about Jesus. Most of you would know about prison prison fellowship, which is in virtually every major prison in America. It's in 117 countries around the world. Thousands and thousands of men and women day in, day out, going into prisons telling people about Jesus. Chuck Colson passed away a few short years ago, and if you go to heaven, you'll meet him one day and and you can ask him. "The, The prison thing, you were hoping to bypass it? Did God prove himself to be good? Hands down, hands down. Can I give you one more? Jim Elliott, some of you would recognize the name, Jim Elliott. Uh, had felt God's calling to be a missionary, very specifically over time, to to the um, Alca people of Ecuador. It was this very secluded, uh, actually a very violent people that had walled themselves off from society from whenever their society began until the time of Jim Elliot's lifetime. And so Jim Elliot and four others felt called to the Alca people of Ecuador they, you can read the details of, of how they planned to reach them, and they used great wisdom and great discernment. They spent months laying the groundwork of, of gently reaching into this culture and everything, and they had some great encouragement coming back. It'd be safe to go in, so the day finally came, that Jim Elliott and four others, they actually, they actually walked in, and then instantly all five of them were murdered by the Alka people. And uh, I'm sure that wasn't what jim elliott had hoped for but he had actually written in his journal a couple years prior to this maybe four years prior to this he had written he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose he is no fool to give what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose so his life is lost, the other four lives are lost. Two years later, stunningly, his wife Elizabeth and the sister of one of the other murdered men go back. They go into the, the Alka people. And this time, the Alka people, out of this bull love, they begin to give their lives to Jesus. And the Alka people quickly become a nation of Christ followers. And now uh, 59 years have passed since 1958 when Elizabeth Elliot went back. 59 years have passed, and they remain this strong, uh, sold-out nation, people group that follow Jesus. In fact, now at some measure, maybe more than most countries, they've become missionaries to the world. So I would ask you this, um, because some of you may be in a hard time now, and you may be asking for extended life for yourself or for a loved one. And I don't know, but God may not give that. And so I I tell you, if you know Jesus, you'll meet Jim Elliot one day. Uh, He only got 28 years. He was following God's lead, and because he followed God's lead, he died at 28. But the last 59 years, he's been in heaven, and there's been this steady growing stream of people entering heaven. And he watches and he understands, Oh, there's another Alka person, or another person that was reached by the Alka people, or someone who was reached by the story of our, of our martyrdom, or this growing stream of people to this day that are entering heaven, and he sees the joy of the Father and the joy of Jesus about one more who made it home. And at some point, the Father looks over and Jesus looks over and says, thank you for trusting me. Thank you for trusting me. Well done, good and faithful servant. And you can ask Jim Elliott: did God prove himself to be good? You were in a hard trying time. You prayed. Did, did God prove himself to be good? It's the one expectation you and I can have. It, it is, it is price it's better than gold. Two learnings so far, two learnings in trying times, honest, unfiltered, unceasing prayer. And then hold one and only one expectation, that God will prove himself to be good in your trying times. Father in heaven, I I pray we can grasp this, we can at least begin to understand the goodness of this promise. To begin to understand that there are times that, that you have something much, much bigger, much better planned. And therefore, the thing we ask for will not be granted because you would not sell short something much better and much bigger. May we grasp that. May may we become a people that will walk into each day, especially the hard, trying, difficult days, and we will hold this deeply grounded expectation of you that that when it's said and done, in, in this circumstance, you will prove yourself to be good. May that grip us. May we be encouraged by that and live that out. In Jesus' name, amen.